Welcome to the Grace City Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to hello at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. Uh, I do want to start out with the message today, though, just being honest with you guys right from the beginning. Um, I believe that all the cool kids say, I'm just going to keep it 100 with you. That's, that's what I'm told. I'm not that young anymore. Um, but basically what I mean is like, let's just, I'm going to shoot you straight. Um, today's going to challenge us. Today's going to challenge us. Now, my hope is that every week when we bring the word of God, it challenges us because it's meant to pierce the parts of our heart and of our lives that aren't currently following Jesus and to help us move forward in doing that, right? Like, if you've been here long enough, hopefully that, that that is a common thing, that you are challenged to become more and more like Jesus, to take on his character in his likeness. But today, I'm going to challenge you, and I'm not going to satisfy all the questions that this sermon is going to bring up, that this text is going to bring up. I'm not going to answer all the nuances of, of things that you could come up with as we are reading through this, that your heart might produce. However, even though Western culture may have told you that that's my job as your pastor, to just have all the answers and tell you what you need to believe and all that, we don't believe that that's actually my role. We believe the Word of God does that. We believe that He gives us the Holy Spirit to live within us to help us work through those things. So I pray that that is not something that would bring you frustration, that you might leave with some more questions today that won't all be satisfied, and you, you might need to wrestle through some things. But I pray that you would then go to the source that can actually answer those things and work on those things from deep down inside of you. That would be the Word of God. That would be prayer to your Heavenly Father and an empowered life full of the Holy Spirit. We believe that's where you will find rest and answers and certainty as we process through our scripture today. So today I ask you that you'd open your heart to his truth, to his leading, and to God's heart for humanity. Not just our heart for how we think things should be. It's really easy to read the scripture through that lens, isn't it? Like, man, okay, here's what the scripture says. Now here's how I'm going to make it say what I want it to say. And we're committed as we go through this series, or a bunch of mini-series on the book of Mark. And as we go through this life, trying to pursue following Jesus with all that we are, we are committed to letting the Bible tell us what the Bible means, not us telling the Bible what it means. Make sense? So I, I just pray that that would be our, our posture this morning. Because today we're going to talk about some super comfortable public discourse, okay? Just the kind of stuff that you're like, man, I hope that this can get talked about in a room of a lot of people with me in it today. Uh, we're going to talk about things like marriage, sex, intimacy, the afterlife, and how our culture has idolized all of them. Just super chill stuff, no controversy, uh, no awkwardness at all. So the title for today's message is simply this, intimacy. Today we are going to talk about intimacy. So, if you'll start with me, we're going to read in Mark chapter 12, and we're going to be in verses 18 through 27. You can read along on the screen, your own Bible or app, or you can just listen to it come from my strong, powerful, beautiful voice. <laughs> All right. Starting in verse 18 of chapter 12. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, being Jesus, with a question. Teacher, they said. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. 
The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, here we go. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, nor will they be like, or they will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Mic drop. Let us pray. God, thank you for your word. We thank you for what you're going to speak to us through this today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak through me in a mighty way, that it would pierce our hearts and help us to understand who you are and what your desire for our life, your plan for our purposes is. God, we love you. We pray that you would work in this time. In Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. My God. That's what I'm talking about. All right. So th this question of life after death has always fascinated humans. It's always fascinated humans. It, you can't have read the Bible more than a couple times and this concept comes up and you start to wonder, right? And you either start to wonder because you love knowledge and you want, what, what's going to happen? What does this look like? If this is what I'm living for, if this is the hope, eternal life in Jesus, what does that look like? Or maybe you're more like me and you wonder because, hey, I want to have some control here, okay? What am I getting myself into? What's it going to look like? How do I plan and prepare and how do I line up everything to, you know, feel like I have some semblance of control? That's a whole other sermon. But we can come into this like just being fascinated by the afterlife. And every religion has some perspective on this issue, though they widely vary if we take just a little look at what different religions believe. Recent surveys actually point out that 80% of Americans believe in some form of afterlife. And about 9% um, say that they're not, just not sure. So there's obviously a spectrum there. But 80% believe in some form of life after death. Now, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we've always had a really strong doctrine about the afterlife. Like, this is important to us. After all, we build our understanding for the future, the end times and eternity from the teachings of Jesus. We build it on an empty tomb and a resurrected and living Savior. But even though we know those things to be true, we have to admit that we, we don't know everything about some of the details and how things work, right? There's just certain things that we don't know. God hasn't made it clear to us, and as Christians, we're called to, in faith, be okay with that. The Bible tells us a lot, but it doesn't tell us everything. It doesn't tell us everything. If you're in this room today... I'm willing to bet that you've had some question about something in the Bible and you just wish that God would make it more clear. It tells us a lot, but it doesn't tell us everything. And in our scriptures today, Jesus countered this troubling riddle, if you will, that the Sadducees delivered to him, and he demolished their doctrine on life after death. Additional scriptures and theological reflection help us to craft a healthy perspective on what we can expect for the future. And so through, through today's message, through this scripture, we're going to learn 
a lot. There's a, there's a lot of things like, oh, that's what that means. Oh, my goodness. Okay, that makes sense. And then there's something that I believe God really wants to tackle in our hearts and in our, our culture today uh, as, we, as we wrap up the message. But for those who trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior, those who trust Christ for salvation, one thing is certain. It's all good. If you trust in him to be your provider, to be your Lord, to be your Savior, no matter what nuances or what details or precision of how things are going to work out that we understand about the future, one thing we know is it's all good. We can trust him. He has a perfect plan, and he chooses to invite us into that, to invite us into that. So as we listen through this today, when maybe you feel some anxiety rising up, you're like, wait, 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 I just don't get that. That doesn't make sense to me. It's all good. If your faith is in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you have found salvation in him, he has a perfect plan. He's included you, and it's all good. So let's break down this scripture. It starts out with this hypothetical problem that these Sadducees are, are giving to Jesus, right? And I call it a hypothetical problem because they're bringing it like this, I'm going to stump him. Jesus isn't going to be able to answer this because we see people continuing to do that. Different sides of the political power structure, the religious power structure in Jerusalem keep coming to Jesus, trying to pit him against one or the other, pinning him in a corner, hoping they can reveal that he's not who he says he is. In this parade of opponents, if you will, continues in this week's scripture. The chief priests, scribes, and elders took their shot and went down in flames in last week's passage, if we recall, as Casey so eloquently helped us to unpack and understand. The Pharisees and the Herodians took Jesus on, and Jesus quickly shut their mouths. He, he made sure, like, okay, that's, that's nothing. Like, hush, you're, you're not going to pin me into a corner here. And now the Sadducees come with this trick question that in reality they had probably tried to use to challenge the Pharisees who were characters in last week's scripture. This was something that they would have used to try to mock this doctrine of resurrection, if you will, or afterlife. And now they try it out on Jesus. So this isn't something that they would have just brought to Jesus. This would have been like, if you've ever talked to someone who's really skeptical about faith or about something else, you know, maybe it's what neighborhood you should live in, what cars, is a Ford or a Chevy better? And somebody's always got that one thing, they're like, boom, there's my trump card, I beat you, right? Like everybody's got that, that trump card in their pocket. This would have been that for them, like, oh, I got this one ready for you. Here's how I'm going to pin you in this corner, and I'm going to help you understand that you don't know what you're talking about. And that's what they're bringing on to him right now. But to really understand this, we need to know who are the Sadducees? Who are the Sadducees? They were a small sect of priestly families. Functionally, they were wealthy aristocrats with significant political and temple influence. In fact, their influence, their political weight, and their in, uh, financial influence, being wealthy, dominated the Sanhedrin. It dominated the Sanhedrin. Now, they were sympathetic to Hellenism. They were sympathetic to the Herods and to Rome. So you have culturally Jewish folks of a, a priestly um, heritage that are sympathetic to the occupying power. They're sympathetic to that. They considered only the books of Moses, which is called the Pentateuch, as authoritative. So in a sense, this made them theological conservatives of the day. Like, oh, we only believe the original five books, right? Like, we only go way back to the well-rooted in history books here. And they also had a strong doctrine of human free will, and they didn't believe in angels or demons. 
They did not believe in the immortality of the soul or a future bodily resurrection. These were all things they didn't believe in. Josephus, who documented much of the history of Jerusalem in the early church, said the doctrine of the Sadducees is this, souls die with bodies. So these people that are asking Jesus this question, their entire worldview that they are believing is that souls die with bodies. So get the most out of now because that's all you got. And they're coming to him from that worldview. And so because of their truncated scriptures, only believing in these, these five books, they were not looking for a Messiah king from David's line like the rest of the Jewish cultural and religious folks would have been. And then with the total destruction of their center of power being Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70, their political influence came to an end and they just suddenly and immediately vanished from like the, the history of Jerusalem and Israel. The temple was gone, their influence was gone, and we read nothing more about them after that from AD 70. Now their trick question here, now that we understand a little bit about where they're coming from, is this issue of brother-in-law marriage. Brother-in-law marriage. Not really a thing that we talk about too much, is it? We don't in this church. Um, <laughs> they actually called it leveret marriage, like Levi-rate marriage, leveret marriage. But it's, it's brother-in-law marriage. And it's mentioned in Genesis 38. It's mentioned in the book of Ruth. And then it's mentioned in Deuteronomy. In 20, or chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. And here's what it says. Here's what these guys are referring to as they try to give Jesus a zinger here. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. It just so matter-of-factly describes this as a brother-in-law duty. I did not know that this was a brother-in-law duty. I'm a brother-in-law, and that's just kind of weird. But what is actually happening here is God makes a provision to protect the widow and guarantee the continuance of a family line. This is a different day and age, and women especially were not dignified as much as they are today. As a society, we still got work to do, but my goodness... Is it better than it was in biblical times? And the family line in having an error, or an heir, H-E-I-R, not error, this was what much of the progression of like hierarchy and power structure and everything was around at this time. So God's saying, hey, here, here's a provision to make sure that the widow's protected and that the family line is continued. Now the Sadducees create this argument and they they just reduce this scripture to what scholars would call absurd and ridiculous. And they use Latin, but I'm not going to bore you with that this morning. But basically they're saying, this is an absurd, ridiculous illustration trying to pin Jesus in the corner. And here's what they say. A man marries a woman and he dies. He has six brothers who cannot fill this brother-in-law obligation. She married each one and tragically all seven died without bearing a child. So the Pharisees and most rabbis believe that the world to come is basically an improved and better version of this world, which therefore would include things like marriage. That's the paradigm of the Pharisees when they think of the resurrection of life. Assuming monogamy, which they would have, that you would be with one person sexually, even after marriage, to whom then would this woman be married to in the afterlife? 
And what they are trying to do, the Sadducees are bringing up this scenario that is so absurd because they think it shows the foolishness of the idea of a future resurrection. They're like, see, how would God work this one out? Well, he's God. I'm sure he he has a plan. But first of all, let's talk about this brother-in-law obligation, okay? What they are trying to say is look at all the problems that your theology of resurrection brings up. They're functionally saying that God is too smart to allow that type of scenario to be true. In the books of Moses, which are the undisputed word of God to them, did not mention future resurrection. So therefore, they say it doesn't exist. This shows you how absurd your argument is. And they think they have this just mic drop moment. Now, Jesus has already spoken of his own resurrection three times up to this point in the book of Mark. So the Sadducees, they think they got him cornered, right? They're like... See, this is ridiculous, Jesus. What do you have to say about this? Now, one thing among many that we know about Jesus is when there is theological error, he is going to correct it. Amen? He is going to correct it in the scriptures. He is going to correct it in his bride, the church. He is going to correct it in our lives. That is what he does. And here, he quickly and clearly deals with this theological error. He says they do not know the scriptures or the power of God. These are people that believe like as far as the Pentateuch goes, like we are the authority on this stuff. And he's like, you don't know the power of God or your scriptures. He's coming directly at them. He tells them that they are plainly deceived and in error. A little bit of offensive language, isn't it? To to tell these guys who are well-respected and powerful positions within the government and religious sector. He accuses, being Jesus, the theological elite of his day in the area of their expertise. This isn't just some like outside anomaly type of scenario. He's coming right at them in what they believe they are the experts on, and he's accusing them of this. What they claim to know best, the Torah, they actually know the least. And because they misunderstand the Bible, they misunderstand God. You see, misinterpreting the scriptures inevitably leads to a distorted view of God. So he's saying, you don't understand God because you are fundamentally messed up on how you are reading these scriptures. When you misunderstand scriptures and you have a distorted view of God, it always leads to your God being too small and too powerless to be the God of the Bible. When we misinterpret scriptures, it leads to the God that you view being too small and too powerless to be the God of the Bible. So Jesus begins correcting them in verse 25. The world of resurrection is different from the world we live in. There is continuity, to be sure. There's continuity between this life and the next. I'll be me. You'll be you. But we will live for all eternity in an entirely new reality. Well, how does that work? I don't know. I leave that up to the the guy who created it. I'll leave that up to my Heavenly Father. But that is what Scripture tells us. Revelation 21.1 says it is called a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Because the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. There will be a new life, an entirely different reality. And Jesus addresses the Sadducees' question to him. It's kind of in three parts. First, he addresses it by saying, well, there will, in fact, be a resurrection. There will be no marriage relationship 
as we know it, and we will become, quote-unquote, like angels, probably in the sense that we will no longer procreate and we will never die. We will never die. Therefore, marriage as we know it will not be necessary, at least for the purposes that we know it for. At least for the purposes we know it for. Now, if no one's ever told you that before to this morning, just let it sink in for a second. We all need to realize or recall that at this point in the history of humanity, the question being asked is not just who gets to be this widow's partner in heaven, but there's more attached to it than that at this historical point in time. There were less overt questions that were being lumped into this riddle of sorts that the Sadducees were giving to Jesus into this hypothetical situation. One, sadly enough, was ultimately who would have property rights over this woman. That was part of how they viewed these relationships. Who who would have the rights to her in the afterlife? And what was likely their key question, will there be sex in heaven? When it just boils down to it, that is also part of what they were asking here. And while the Bible does not pose the question that overtly, I think we can safely shed some light on the answer. We know from the Bible that we will exist as glorified bodies in heaven, but will maintain our unique identities. There will be, in one sense, sex in heaven, because sex identifies us in terms of gender. But whatever physical, sexual, and sensual pleasure we enjoy in this life will be transcended beyond our imagination in the life to come. It will be transcended. It will be far beyond that. Nobody will be disappointed when they get to heaven. No one's going to be disappointed when you show up at those pearly gates or however you view this. No one's going to show up and be like, oh, man, oh, shucks. I just, I wish it would have been better than this. <laughs> that, that's not the case. No one will be deprived of one thing that is necessary for maximum joy, optimum happiness, and complete satisfaction. No one. That won't be part of the experience. Our relationship with Jesus and with all our brothers and sisters will be so intense and so filled with love and affection that all earthly marital bliss will seem shallow and small in comparison. It will seem shallow and small in comparison. Heaven is indeed God's perfect plan for his children who have come to him through his son, Jesus. It is not some second place kind of thing. It's not like, well, everything that you were really going to live for on earth is over, so come into this holding pattern and just kind of exist. And like, No. This is God's perfect plan, and it's going to be so much better than what we experience here. And then Jesus moves forward, and he defeats the Sadducees on their own turf. A book of Moses. You see, the doctrine of resurrection finds Old Testament support in places like Job, Psalm 16, Daniel 12, and other places. And Jesus, with grace albeit, meets the Sadducees where they are and takes them to this burning bush story found in Exodus 3.6. Here, God speaks to Moses in the present tense. He says, I am the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
Though these men had died physically, they are alive spiritually right now. He's saying, currently, I am their God. They are alive. All is well on our end of things. He didn't say, I was their God when they were here on earth. He says, I am right now their God. I am their God. Further, being their God implies a covenant. And we need to remember that when God has a covenant, he does not break it. We could do a whole series on covenant theology and how covenant plays out through the scriptures. Covenant is a big deal. And it is inconceivable that the eternal God does not maintain an eternal covenant with his people. Which is exactly what we find in the covenant God first made with Abraham and later with David. Tim Keller explains it this way. Notice that Jesus does not hang the hope of life after death, like the Greeks did, on the idea of an immortal part of us. Rather, he rests in the commitment of God to us. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a very powerful argument for life after death. We have a God who cannot, at our death, scrap that which is precious to him. Our death here on earth is not the end of the story. And God makes a case for that all throughout scriptures. And Jesus is dealing with this in the hearts and souls of the Sadducees in this moment. Thus, the matter between Jesus and the Sadducees ends with this. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The Sadducees are wrong, and Jesus has silenced his critics once again. We're kind of getting used to this, right? I don't know if if you guys are anything like me, but now I read these kind of confrontations, and I'm like, ooh, this is going to be good. You know, you grab the popcorn, like, all right, here we go. What's Jesus going to do this time? So we have to ask ourselves the question, why are there so many things in here that are difficult for us or that raise questions for us? I've been studying this stuff for a bit, preparing to speak on this and share God's heart with you all today, and I still have questions. Why is this so challenging for us to see this as good news? Can we be honest with ourselves and realize, man, I really love, like, my life right now. I really, you know, if you're married, I really love my wife. You know, like, these things that are being challenged as not being part of life after death or in God's kingdom of eternity, like, how can I get excited about that? How can I get excited about that? Why are the potential realities of an afterlife void of our marriages as we know them and sexual intimacy such a challenge for us to be excited about and find as being good news whatsoever? Why is that a challenge for us? So let's start by rewinding human history for just a bit and think about the example Jesus set for us in his life regarding marriage, sex, and procreation. Did you guys know that Jesus didn't get married? He didn't have sex. He didn't reproduce. There's no offspring of Jesus, okay? That that, that should cause us to maybe wonder about this this idol of marriage in these things that exist in our culture. That's just at a foundational level. For Jesus, the purpose of life was for the sake of the kingdom of God. That was like the ultimate purpose to Jesus, that we live for the sake of the kingdom of God. Human beings will fulfill their true purpose when they love or live in such a way that they are living and breathing image bearers of God. That's how we fulfill our purpose, 
is to be living, breathing image bearers of our creator, of God. That's our purpose. For some humans, this will mean getting married. Because marriage is a symbol of the covenant love of God. I didn't say the, it is a symbol of the covenant love of God. Where a man and a woman come together, two separate, now becoming one, a new life is generated. It is an example, a signpost. It is meant to point towards the covenant love of God manifest here on earth. It is a representation of that. It is not the representation of that. Because in Jesus' mind, marriage is not the only way to image the covenant love of God. It's not the only way. You see, Jesus was actually historically the first religious teacher that we know of to elevate the role of unmarried single life. For it to be normal, honorable, significant, and meaningful. He was the first religious teacher to elevate that kind of life. And early Christianity was the first religion that honored people not getting married as leading exemplary lives. So much of religious tradition, and unfortunately this remains still today, is that the end goal is to get married, have kids, have this happy, fulfilled life, and move forward. But Jesus actually came to shift that paradigm and elevated that there was other ways to image God, to honor Him, to glorify and live an exemplary life. But here's the challenge for us in our culture today. To hear Jesus say, you don't need to have sex to have a meaningful life. You might as well start talking about aliens and conspiracy theories. To say that like, hey, you, you don't need to have that to have a meaningful life. It's like, oh, here we go again with all these conspiracy theories. Aren't we just fed up with those after the last four years? Okay. This is so off the map for our culture. It's just so far out there. It's so far out there. As a child myself of Western culture... We have grown up in the most visually, sexually stimulated generation in the history of the human race. I don't think there's any arguing that. In the history of the human race. You can't tell me that that hasn't had a huge fundamental effect on our brains and our views of what sex is. This world that we've grown up in where everything's just in front of you, like everything is oriented around that, how we market, how we get Instagram followers, however, whatever else. I mean, that's how I do it. Just joke. This is, <laughs> couldn't help it. Sorry, babe. Everything is oriented around that, unlike any generation that we have ever had. And we've been raised up in a culture that has completely separated sex from the act of procreation. So now sex is actually a commodity, right? It's, it's been turned into a commodity. It's something that we do that feels good. And if it makes you happy, then just go for it. And we're in a culture where sex is the meaning of life. And like I said, I don't think we can argue that point. In America, it has been made to be the pursuit of life the gravitational pull of life in so many ways. And then right behind that, right below that, if you will, is marriage. And this idea in America, in the West, in the church, unfortunately, that marriage is the primary path towards happiness and fulfillment in life. That's just kind of our culture, how we view things. 
Now, that, that shouldn't surprise us because we live in a country that has boasted a founding vision that everyone has the right to what? To pursue life, liberty, and happiness. Life, liberty, and happiness. That's the founding vision. So what's the best thing in life? Well, clearly sex. And what's the best way to be fulfilled as a human being? Well, being married. So, of course, we are where we are today, where those things have been put on unhealthy pedestals. They have become idols. They have become out of alignment with God's design and plan for them. It's no surprise, given our culture, that that's how these things are viewed. But what should surprise us is that the church in America has almost completely bought into this vision. Almost completely bought into this vision. Maybe not fully the sex part in some veins of church, but definitely this marriage part. In most American churches, single people report feeling the most isolated, not included, and alone because the dominant paradigm is get married, have kids. And that's the pathway to meaningful life. It's been put in its wrong place. Not just in the world, but unfortunately in the church. And now I just want to be extremely clear with this. I do not believe that is how Jesus views these things. I don't believe that's how he views those things. He didn't get married, right? Anybody got an argument other than that? (laughs) Jesus didn't get married. So can that be his foundational view of how we are to be image bearers, how we are to live as humans? Do we think that Jesus didn't have a meaningful life? Careful. Do we think he didn't have a meaningful life? Do you think that Jesus didn't think meaningful life was possible because he didn't have sex and he didn't get married? I would argue that he had the most meaningful human life that a human has ever had. And none of those things were part of his 33 or so years on earth. But somehow, in the world we live in, in the social climate and culture that we live in, we can't compute that. And we still hold these things in such high, unhealthy esteem that it just throws our world, our theology, our churches, our lives out of whack. So we end up creating churches where people who aren't married feel like they're second class. Let us be clear that to Jesus, there are multiple ways a human can image God, can bear his image. And one of them absolutely is through marriage, the way Jesus defines it. Now, sex is absolutely not the pinnacle of ecstasy. In fact, sex causes at least as much heartbreak as it does ecstasy in our world. We don't have to have too many conversations with people. We don't have to look at too many statistics to realize that. It causes just as much or more heartbreak. And marriage and having kids is not definitely the pinnacle of happiness. Can it be fulfilling? Can it, is, can it be great? Absolutely. But it also leads to a lot of lack of sleep, a ton of sacrifice and, fa- sacrifice and intentional investment. It's not bad. It's just not perfect. It's not the destination, the end-all, be-all. The reality is that a life of singleness has freedom of time, resources, and mobility in one's schedule and lifestyle that in the history of the church is marked by incredible heroes and heroines of the faith who were single. 
If you study church history, if you look in your Bible, there are heroes and heroines of the faith that were living the single life, honoring, glorifying God and living exemplary lives. And as a church, we do not do a good enough job talking about those things. But somehow we've grown up in a culture that makes that life seem second rate. And I actually think this leads us to not seeing clearly. It leads us to not seeing our present reality clearly, and especially not seeing our eternity and ultimate purpose clearly. You see, our lives lived following Jesus, obedient to the scriptures, this side of heaven are meant to be signposts directing people to Jesus. They're meant to just be like a, a directional sign along the way, pointing people, hey, yes, I, I'm doing my best to live for Jesus in faith, like full of his Holy Spirit, to point to him. And honorable, Christ-centered marriages are meant to be signposts that point to the kingdom of God, that point to heaven and point to covenant and new life. They're meant to point to that. An honorable single life is meant to be a signpost pointing to the kingdom of God, pointing to heaven, pointing to living a life of intentionality and purpose and a reliance on God for intimacy and fulfillment. They are meant to be signposts that point to him. Every year or so, my family drives across the country this place called Iowa. It's a little bit of a, of a drive. We go out there to spend time with Bree's family. And on our way, we follow the GPS, we follow the road signs, we follow the signposts, if you will, all the way across the country, or at least 2,000 miles across the country. But as soon as we pull into Bree's childhood home where her parents still live, I do not need the signposts anymore. I don't need them anymore. I don't need those things that point me in the right direction because I have arrived at the destination. Now listen up. I don't want you to miss this today. When you reach your destination, you no longer need the signposts that are pointing to it. And so yes, an honorable single life, a married life, like all these things, they point to the kingdom of God. They point to heaven. They point to being with him and what covenant love looks like. But when you arrive at your destination, you don't need those signposts anymore because you're there. You've arrived and it's going to be so much better when you're there than the 2,000 miles across the country or whatever your journey through life looks like. The destination is always so much better. When you get to heaven, the afterlife, God's fully established kingdom, however you want to word it, you no longer need the earthly representations of his covenant and his ultimate plan for intimacy and fulfillment because you have arrived within them. You will be experiencing them. You don't need things to tell you, hey, keep going that way. This is what it looks like because you're there. When we're in heaven with our creator God for eternity, we will need nothing else. We will have everything that we need. We won't be lacking. We won't be wishing that we had more. We won't be loathing our current circumstances. We will need nothing. When we're with God for eternity, we don't need indicators of where we're headed because we've arrived. And when we arrive, you guys, it'll be amazing. It'll be amazing. 
Eternity with God, believe it or not, will be better than sex. Eternity with God will be better than marriage as we know it. And eternity with God will be better than any other life circumstance or lifestyle that we experience here on earth. Worship team, you can head back up. We will experience ultimate intimacy beyond our anticipation and beyond what we can fathom. Beyond what we can fathom. You see, the Sadducees weren't so different from us. They needed an adjustment of their perspective and what the ultimate purpose of humanity was and where ultimate fulfillment and intimacy come from. As amazing as a marriage relationship can be, as amazing as sex within the confines of marriage can be, the ultimate purpose of us as humans is not to engage in those things. They are a signpost that points to the ultimate purpose of us being with our Creator for eternity, of us living for the sake of the kingdom of God, for heaven to be established here on earth. That is our ultimate purpose. And we as Christians, we as the church, must testify to an eternity with Jesus that far surpasses anything that we can experience here on earth. We have to testify to a reality of a future with Jesus that is far better than anything that this world has to offer. We have to resist testifying through our words and our priorities and our actions that sex and marriage are the ultimate forms of intimacy and sources of fulfillment. And we must point to the only one who can satisfy. That is a relationship with King Jesus. That is a life and eternity with our Creator. We are called to point to the source of ultimate intimacy. Ultimate intimacy, not temporal intimacy, as God-honoring and covenant-reflecting as it may be here and now. We are to live in a way that points to the ultimate source. We must point to heaven, and we must bring heaven to earth every chance we get. We can expect a great God to prepare a great heaven. The Bible doesn't tell us everything that we want to know, but it tells us more than enough to long for that glorious destiny. It doesn't tell us everything we want to know, but gosh, it tells us enough to know it's going to be amazing. But the real question when we boil this down is not will there be sex or marriage as we know it in heaven. The real question we need to ask ourselves is will you spend eternity with Jesus? Will you personally, whether you're at home, in this room, wherever you're at, you need to ask yourself, am I going to spend eternity with Jesus? Is this my future? Is this where I place my hope in an eternity with him? Will you be in the presence of your creator for eternity? It will be wonderful beyond words, and it will be beyond our comprehension. And some of us, we like to think we can figure things out. We like to think we can wrap our minds around pretty much anything. And this idea of it's going to be way better than you can even imagine, it makes us a little uncomfortable. <clears throat> That's where faith comes in. The Bible paints us a clear picture that it will be lacking nothing. We will be lacking nothing. 
So I have to ask you this question. Will you individually commit your life? Will you commit to putting your faith in this Jesus? Will you stop putting your faith in the temporal (laughs) reflections or signposts of God in this world and thinking that that's the end all, that's how you are going to be fulfilled for all eternity and realize that your hope being in Jesus, your faith being in Him and eternity with Him is the main point, is the real point here. Will you put your faith in Him as your Lord and your Savior, securing your eternity in Him, securing your place in this family forever? Now maybe you have questions about this. I still do. It's okay to have questions. I don't know of anybody in here that's got it all figured out. I've still got questions. But I think about it this way for myself. I can't learn golf by just analyzing other people playing golf and making my judgments on if I will ultimately be a good golf player. Like, I can't look at it and be like, oh, I think I got it figured out. I'm going to go golf, you know, birdie golf now. Like, no. Is that a thing, golfing birdie golf? I can't learn it if I don't engage in it. You can't figure everything out about Jesus and following him without pursuing him. You can't figure out what it means to follow him without following him. And when you do, when you engage in the life he calls you to engage in, and you stop trying to figure it all out first, and you submit to him as your savior, you submit to him as your Lord, as your king, watch as he transforms your heart. So many people sit on the outside and let God transform my heart so I can follow you. No, that's not how it works. It's not how it works. It's Jesus. I give everything to you. Would you transform my life from the inside out? I'm sick of trying to do this on my own. I need you. I am, even though I don't want to admit it, unqualified to be the king of my own life, to govern this thing myself. You know better because you created me. And I give it to you. And as you follow him and you trust in him, watch as he transforms your heart, your soul, your relationships, and your legacy. I pray that you would give Jesus a chance personally to work in your heart and soul like he's worked in mine. That's all I ask. Just give him a chance. Just give him a chance to work in your heart and your soul like he has worked in so many of ours and continues to in this room. Amen? God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this word. We thank you for a perspective shift. That ultimately, God, our pursuit is not in the temporal reflections of who you are and your covenant and your love that you give us as a gift now. But ultimately, God, eternity with you in your presence for the sake of the kingdom of God is what we live for. God, I pray for anyone in this room right now that has questions that just can't wrap their mind around what this looks like or how you could have faith in something that seems so intangible. God, would you lead them to a place of humility to receive you as Lord and Savior, engaging in a life of following you, and would you transform their heart right now in the name of Jesus. We thank you. We declare that you are the hero of this life and the life to come, and we will live accordingly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.